pray. Thank you all for being here. Uh, it's great to be together. Uh, I know for some of us, it's been a little bit longer day for those of us who are at the service today. Uh, for those of you who are here, and particularly for those of you who helped out in different ways, thank you so much. I know it really meant a lot to the family to be able uh, to be together like that today. Uh, but let's pray and ask the Lord to give us wisdom tonight. Heavenly Father, as always, we want to thank you so much just for uh, your incredible love for us, your incredible faithfulness to us, uh, the kindness that you show us in so many different ways. Lord, we do just want to continue to pray for all of the family of Kevin and just for uh, the grieving that they're going to continue to go through. Um, I know in so many ways today was really a, a good day as they were able to connect with one another. And, and, and I know, Lord, find encouragement from you and comfort from you. Uh, we just pray, Lord God, that they would continue to turn to you, particularly, Lord, those maybe who wouldn't normally do that. We pray that this uh, would be an opportunity for them uh, to consider you and to consider what you have done for them and really to be able to, to find their strength and their hope and their encouragement in you. Father, we want to thank you also for another opportunity to be together tonight and we are always, Lord, excited to be able to sit at your feet and have you teach us. And so that's what we uh, ask you to do tonight, is to once again, Lord, reveal yourself to us. Help us to, to know you better. Help us to understand your word as we continue to talk about issues related to eschatology, uh, particularly tonight, Lord God, as we talk about what happens uh, after we die and before the resurrection, um, just give us your wisdom. Lord, we want to think your thoughts after you, and we want to rightly understand your word. You are the God of all wisdom. You are the God of all truth. And we thank you that it is your heart to continue to make yourself known to us and to help us to understand you in deeper ways. So we pray that you would be powerfully present tonight through your Holy Spirit, and we pray, Lord God, that each one of us would draw closer to you and truly, Lord God, be encouraged and strengthened by you and your word. And praise Jesus in your name alone and for your will alone. Amen. Amen. Well, for you who have been here, uh, hopefully all that we have been looking for sort of a general introduction to eschatology, eschatology, the doctrine or the teaching of the final things or the last things. We took a look at some of the Old Testament passages that are particularly forward-looking as they were seeking the Spirit of the Lord, seeking of things that would come. And so we want to kind of the perspective of the Old Testament, what was future for them, what was coming for them. And of course, it all centered around the Messiah, the promised one coming into the world. And then, of course, what we saw is that there were certain things that were spoken of that we now see in place because Jesus has come the first time. But we see that there are things that were spoken of and, and prophesied that are not yet in place things that are still awaiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And so we talked about how the New Testament really is a very, very unique age. The New Testament authors are aware that the end of the ages has dawned. The last days 
have arrived. That's the language of the New Testament authors. And of course, what they are emphasizing there is that with the Messiah, Jesus, coming into the world the first time, the age of fulfillment had arrived. The age of fulfillment had arrived. So the Apostle Paul, when he was writing the church in Corinth, he said, we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. The Apostle Peter, when he was giving voice to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel and the outpouring of the Spirit, he said, in these last days. So we are trying to consider things from a biblical perspective. And so when we talk about the last days, or when we talk about the end of the ages, we're not simply talking about that final moment just before the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, we're talking about the entirety of the New Testament age, or sometimes we refer to it as the age of the church. We said that there is a tension that the New Testament absolutely expects us to hold in balance. And that is already and not yet. The kingdom is here, but the kingdom is coming. So remember, we looked at Jesus speak about the kingdom, and he talked about it in a future sense. He talked about in the kingdom, many will be gathered from east and west and sit at table and have fellowship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, talking about a future component of the kingdom. But then in another passage, Jesus says, if in fact I am driving out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived, or the kingdom of God has come to you. And so speaking of the kingdom as a present reality. So it's so important that we understand the New Testament wants us to hold on to both an already and a not yet perspective. We are absolutely living in the age of fulfillment, but there are still glorious things that are coming as well. But it's helpful when we think about the world in which we live or when we think about our own personal relationship with Jesus. So when we look at the world around us, we can clearly see the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is advancing, the kingdom of God is growing. These are all things that Jesus promised. So when we get news from India, from Pastor Sam, or when we get news from uh, Akitos, from our Peruvian sisters and brothers, we hear incredible reports of the kingdom of God advancing, the kingdom of God growing. The kingdom of God is, in fact, here. But we also see incredibly discouraging things. We see evil continuing to permeate society and culture. We see the kingdom of darkness continuing to enslave people. Well, why is that still the case? Because there still is a future component to the kingdom. The kingdom is not here as fully as it will be when Jesus Christ returns. So we see the growth of two kingdoms, the growth of the kingdom of God and the growth of the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus said that both of these will continue to grow until the time of harvest, until the end of this age. And remember, we made a distinction between the end of the ages and the end of 
this age, the last days and the last day. So also when we think about the already and the not yet, you think about your own battle with sin. On the one hand, in your life, sin is defeated. It was defeated the moment that Christ died, the moment that you received his forgiveness. And yet we continue to fight sin every day. You are new in Christ, and yet you have to die to yourself daily. So there's this tension, not only in the entire cosmos between the already and the not yet, but there's this tension in each one of us. We see the kingdom of God at work in our lives, but we know there is still a greater manifestation of that kingdom in our lives that is coming. And so when you start to think about this, you realize that almost everything that we have in Christ, in a sense, is already and not yet. Do you have eternal life right now? Yes. But is eternal life a promised future blessing? Yes, absolutely. Do you have salvation right now? Yes. But Peter in particular talks about receiving salvation on that day when Christ returns. So you can see how important this is for understanding our daily Christian life, fully embracing everything that we have in Christ right now, but realizing that there is still something better that is coming. And then the last thing that we talked about was the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit arrived, the age of the Spirit arrived, and the Spirit of God was given in a way that he had never been given before in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And what we see is that a significant part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is God guaranteeing you that everything that he has promised you, it will be given. So we talked about the Spirit as a deposit or a guarantee or a pledge this is some of the ways that word arabon is translated. And again, the idea of arabon is something that is given as a pledge for the full amount or a deposit until the remainder can be given. We saw that another name for the Spirit in the New Testament is the Spirit is the first fruits. Remember thinking in terms of agriculture, the first of your crop was given to the Lord. And in doing that, you were saying, Lord, the entire crop is yours. And then you were in faith believing that the rest of the crop was going to come in. And so the spirit of God is the spirit of first fruits. So one of the most powerful and necessary ministries of the Holy Spirit is his presence in our life, absolutely guaranteeing us, making sure that we never doubt that everything that God has promised, we are going to experience because the Spirit is in us. We have been sealed, to use the language of Paul, with the promised Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we said is that because the Spirit has arrived, the Spirit has taken so many of the benefits and so many of the blessings of the coming age and pulled them back into this present age. So that's why we are experiencing so much of the good things of eternity right now. That's why you are genuine experiencing eternal life 
right now. That's why you are genuinely experiencing victory over sin right now. That's why you are genuinely experiencing these incredible blessings that will be fully realized in the coming age. But because the Holy Spirit has been given, those things have been pulled back from the coming age and given to us now in this present age. Again, emphasizing the already as well as the guaranteed promise of the not yet. So all of this is what they referred to as inaugurated eschatology or realized eschatology. That means these are the things that are already present. These are the things that are already here. Future for the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets, but present for us. And so a big part of eschatology is understanding what is already ours right now and fully believing and fully embracing the incredibly extravagant and lavish things that the Lord has poured into our lives through the Holy Spirit who has been given. So with that part complete, what we are going to look at next and for the remainder of our time together is what is referred to as future eschatology. These are the things that we have not yet experienced. We're going to start with something very personal, but then the majority of it is going to be very global and things that infect the entirety of creation. But before we make this transition into looking at the first components of future eschatology, I just want to pause to see if there are any questions about what we have looked at so far. I realize that was a fairly quick review but any, any comments or questions about that before we move on to the new information on the sheets in front of you? That is all hopefully making sense. Okay, so the first piece of future eschatology that we're going to look at is what is oftentimes referred to as the intermediate state. The intermediate state. So if you are ever reading a doctrine or a theology book and they talk about the intermediate state, this is what they are referring to. So you see on the sheet in front of you, you have space for a definition. The intermediate state is simply that time frame between death and the resurrection. The intermediate state is that time frame between death and the resurrection. So for each of us sitting here, death is something that is future for us. None of us have died yet in the sense of physical death, which we will talk about because the Bible actually talks about a couple different kinds of death. So we are now transitioning into the future component of eschatology and beginning with something that is on the horizon for each of us, unless we live to see the return of Jesus Christ. So basically, the intermediate state asks the question, what happens if you die before the resurrection? Now, one thing that we have to make absolutely clear, the strong, strong emphasis of the New Testament is not on the intermediate state. 
what we are going to find is actually the New Testament doesn't have a whole lot to say about it. Because the primary focus of the New Testament is not simply what happens to you personally. And your death is a very personal thing. The primary focus of the New Testament is the resurrection, which occurs at the end of the age. And that is far more frequently repeated and taught and spoken of in the New Testament. So what we are going to find tonight is that the scriptures give us a very, very clear idea as to what happens in this time frame, but not a very detailed or exhaustive idea. But this is basically asking the question, what happens if I die before the return of Jesus Christ? What happens between my death and the resurrection? All of humanity will experience the resurrection. And in a couple of weeks, we will talk about the resurrection. All of humanity will experience the things that are associated with the return of Jesus Christ and the future age of eternity. So this is asking the question, what happens if I die before the return of Jesus Christ? This is known as the intermediate state. So what we are going to do first is we're going to take some time to try to understand how does the scripture define death? So the first passage for us on this sheet, Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17. Would someone be willing to find that for us and read that? And again, as you are reading here, just make sure you grab the handheld mic, turn it on, and read into the handheld mic so the folks on Zoom can hear what we are looking at. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on, that, on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Thank you, Elliot. So from these two verses that Elliot read for us, what do we learn about death? Microphone, please. Hey, the Zoom folks want to hear what you have to say. You want to leave them in the dark? It came through Adam. So death came through Adam. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Adam has been created. He has been placed in the garden. And death at this point is a warning that God has given. It is conditional at this point. He says, look, you are free to eat from every tree in the garden, except there's one tree from which you must never eat. And that tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
and on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So not a lot of detail is given to us there. Not a lot of explanation is given to us there as to what death would mean, what death would involve. But we understand that clearly death would come if man did not do what God said. God said, eat from this, don't eat from that. If you eat from what I tell you not to eat from, you will die. So we see here a strong connection between dying and death and disobedience or sin. God was not vague. He was not unclear. He said, look, don't eat from this tree. If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. That will be a consequence of your sin and disobedience. The Apostle Paul makes a comment about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Do we have a volunteer who is willing to read for us Romans chapter 5, verse 12? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death come to all men because of sin. All right. So Paul really just kind of lays it out here for us. Thank you for reading that. So one man, as Sima emphasized, Adam, through one man, sin came into the world. And through that sin of that one man, death came into the world. And then he reverses it. And he says, everyone dies because everyone has sinned. So it's interesting, when the New Testament is reflecting on Adam, it actually looks at it in a couple of different complementary ways. In a sense, all of humanity fell when Adam sinned. We all died in Adam. And yet, we are also responsible for our own sinful behavior. So we were born sinful because of Adam's sin, but we can't just blame it all on Adam. We can't just say, hey, it's not my fault, Adam sinned. God, why are you judging me? Why are you threatening death over me when it was Adam's sin? So absolutely, there is a headship that is assigned to Adam. He was responsible for the entire human race. And when he sinned, not only did he die, not only did Eve die, but all of humanity died with him. But there also here is an individual responsibility that the New Testament emphasizes as well. You will die because you have sinned. It all started with Adam, and we all died in Adam when he sinned, but you will die because of your sin. You see how Paul emphasizes both of those things. They are not contradictory. They are complementary. But what we see here is that death is a result 
of sin. So death is not God's ideal. God, death is not God's best. Death is something that is now permeated all of creation because of sin and an unwillingness to do what God said do and not do what God said not to do. So that is what brought sin into the world. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, of course, we know first Eve and then Adam eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had said, on the day that you eat from that, you will surely die. So what happened? What happened at that moment when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed the Lord? Well, part of it we find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Would someone be willing to turn to that and read that for us? Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. I'm sorry, go ahead. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, but dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So this is part of God cursing Adam. This is part of God's curse against Adam. And first of all, he says, look, work is going to be really hard for you. It's going to be toil. It's going to be labor. You're going to eat from the sweat of your brow. Work is not going to be pleasant all the time. It's not going to be easy. Creation is not going to cooperate. You know, God said there's going to be thorns and there's going to be thistles. Well, that may not be a big hindrance to you on a given day, but if you're a farmer and you're growing your crops and you've got all these things growing with your crops that you don't want and you can't eat, that makes farming hard work. So God said, look, creation is not going to cooperate with you anymore. It's going to be hard to work. So if you get up some days and you feel like, man, my job is hard, that's absolutely what God promised it would be. That's part of God's curse. But then for our purpose, what he says is, look, you are going to return to the ground. And this harkens back to Genesis chapter 2. Because when God created man, he created him out of the ground, out of the dirt of the earth. In fact, the name Adam means land or earth or red because dirt is reddish oftentimes. So what happened when God created Adam was he created him out of the dirt, out of the mud, out of the ground. And so part of what death means is that we return to the ground from which we were created. And of course, what we understand now in more modern terms is that God is talking about physical death. Because when God had formed man out of the ground, he wasn't yet a living being until what? What did God have to do to make that formed dirt into a living being? Put the spirit in him. Breathe. 
breathe yeah, in. Absolutely. Breathe the spirit into him, breathe life into him, the breath of God. And remember, the, the Hebrew word for breath can mean either breath or wind or spirit. But when Adam was just dirt, God breathed his life, God breathed his spirit into him, and then he became a living being. So physical death is separation. Physical death is the separation of your physical body. Whatever you want to break it down into elements, atoms, more, 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 you know, grand than that or smaller than that. So it's the separation of your body from the part of you that is not your physical body. So we'll just say the immaterial you. All right. So when God said, look, on the day that you eat from this tree that I have forbidden you to eat from, you will surely die. On that day, they did not die physically. But physical death now would be unavoidable. Physical death would now be unavoidable. This was not God's initial intention for creation. Remember when he drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, he says, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. So humanity from the very creation had the potential to live forever. But sin interrupted that. And physical death is the returning of the physical elements of a human being back to the ground, the chemicals that you're made of, the atoms that you're made of, and then you are separated. The immaterial you is separated from your physical body. That is one type of death as defined by the scriptures. Okay? All this making sense? Now, just a quick aside. In the New Testament, as well as in the Old, sometimes the scriptures refer to the immaterial you as a soul. That is a word that the New Testament uses. A couple of examples of that. Um, if someone can read Matthew 10.28. Matthew 10.28. And we'll just take one more. Uh, Revelation 6, chapter 9. Revelation 6, chapter 9. So these are examples of where the New Testament refers to who you are that is not your physical body as a soul. Would someone read for us Matthew 10, 28? Matthew 10, 28. And fear not then, which kill the body, or are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to, to destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, so these are the words of Jesus. 
We will look at this a bit more closely when we start to talk about the topic of hell. But what we see here is that Jesus is making reference to humans as both body and soul. He says, don't fear the one who only can destroy your body. So don't fear the one who can only physically kill you, who can separate your body from your soul, but after that can do no more harm to you. He said, in fact, fear the one who can destroy or perish or lose both your body and your soul. So it is absolutely correct and biblical to refer to that aspect of yourself that is not material, that is not physical, as a soul. Does someone have for us Revelation chapter 6, verse 9? Thank you, Ted. Am I on? Um, when the Lamb broke this fifth seal, I, John, saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Okay. So this is part of the vision that John was given in the book of Revelation. And these are people who have been slain who have physically died because of their witness for Christ, and John sees them as souls underneath the altar of God. So here again, we see a reference to the immaterial component of a person being referred to as a soul. One other that you can look up on your own that we will not look up tonight together is Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Now, it's important for us also to realize that this Greek word that is translated in these passages, soul, can also mean some other things. It can simply mean life. It can mean self. It can mean human. So it has a broad range of meaning. But one of the ways this word is used, as we've seen here, is to refer to that aspect of your being that is not physical that is not biological, that is not made up of chemicals and minerals and atoms and all of those things. But what we also see is that just as easily, the New Testament sometimes refers to that immaterial you as spirit. And so let's look at a couple examples of that. Would someone look for us Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And would someone else find for us Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23? So Acts chapter 7, verse 59, and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. And again, as soon as we have a couple people with those passages, let's just read those out together. Testing, testing. Um, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Okay, so this is the end of the account of the defense and the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. 
So as he is dying physically, as his body is returning to the ground from which it came, he says, Jesus, receive my spirit. So he clearly understood that as his immaterial self was being separated from his physical self, he was going to be with Jesus. And we'll talk about that more in detail tonight. But in this case, he refers to himself as spirit. And that's just as correct as referring to himself as soul. Does someone have Hebrews 12, 23? 12, 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Okay, so here the author of Hebrews is describing the entirety of the New Testament church, both those who are living on earth and those who are living with God in heaven. And here he describes those living with God in heaven as spirits who have been made perfect. That's obviously not us yet. We are not perfect yet. So again, just like the vision that John had in Revelation 6-9, here is a vision of those who have been perfected in Christ. And they are referred to as spirits. So why do I emphasize this? Because historically, there have been times where the church has made a sharp delineation between soul and spirit. You maybe have heard teachings that talk about the threefold nature of human beings, body, soul, and spirit. If the New Testament is trying to make a strong distinction between soul and spirit, I don't really see it. I don't really see it. I have a hard time finding any passage of scripture that makes a strong theological distinction between soul and spirit. There are other ways of describing the immaterial you, your heart, your mind, your will, your thought. Again, these are all New Testament words that are describing who you are. But for me personally, I try to avoid any teaching that comes from a strong distinction between soul and spirit. Because I think when these words are being used in this way to describe part of who you are, they are almost being used interchangeably. What they are talking about is non-physical you. What they are talking about is what leaves your physical body when you physically die. Sometimes it's referred to as your spirit. Sometimes it's referred to as your soul. And again, I don't think there is a lot of good fruit that comes from trying to make a strong distinction between these. If the New Testament is trying to make a strong distinction between soul and spirit, I don't see it. And so I think it is right for you to say that you are body and spirit, and you are body and soul. And then certainly to expand the definition of the immaterial component of who you are, the words we mentioned before, your will, your thoughts, your motives, your desire, your heart, your drive. These are all things that describe that immaterial you. But to me, as I read the New Testament, 
either soul or spirit is one of the ways of describing who you are apart from your physical body. That being said, you were never intended to be bodiless. That was never God's intention. God didn't create you as spirit or soul and then say, oh, you're pretty good that way. And then a couple years later, I'll say, hey, let me give you a body. No, from the very beginning, Adam was a body before the spirit or breath of God was breathed into him. Death is so incredibly disruptive because you were never intended to be bodiless. So when you die physically, you enter a state of existence that was never God's ultimate best for us. We were never intended to be bodiless. That is a result of sin, the sin of disobedience. So those souls that John sees under the altar, those spirits that the author of Hebrews describes, they are temporarily bodiless. But that is not God's best. That was not God's initial intention for humanity. You were created to be body and soul, body and spirit together eternally. And of course, that's what we're looking for. What is the resurrection? The resurrection is the receiving of your eternal resurrection body. That's the great hope. That's why this intermediate state is not a huge emphasis. Because when you die, something incredibly wrong happens. You are separated from your body. And that only comes as a result of sin. That only comes as a result of disobedience. That never should have happened. Had Adam walked in obedience, physical death would never have been a part of God's creation. And so when you die physically, something incredibly disruptive has happened to you and is happening in God's creation. And it's a temporary, it's a temporary condition. The intermediate state is temporary. You will be bodiless temporarily. You will be spirit or soul in the presence of God temporarily. But that is not God's ultimate destiny for any of us. His ultimate destiny is to once again have us completely united with a physical body. Okay? But let me pause here to see if there's any comments or questions about this concept of physical death. The separation. Death is a separation. The separation of your physical body from your immaterial or spiritual being. But a thought or a question about this? Yeah, Ephraim, please. No, I was thinking in the this body is corruptible. They have to be incorruptible. Exactly. Absolutely. First Corinthians 15. It's impossible for flesh and blood to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because exactly as Ephraim said, this body is corruptible. It is perishable. It is immortal, to use the words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. This body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We've got to leave this body behind. Before the fall, 
the body that Adam and Eve were given, that could have existed in eternity with God. But sin disrupted that. Sin brought the curse of death into creation. Sin brought the curse of death onto them personally. And that's why God said, look, a day is coming where your physical body is going to return to the ground. So the new bodies that we will receive on the day of resurrection, incorruptible, imperishable, immortal. Everything that these bodies are not, our new bodies will be. But your great hope is not simply when you die and go to be with the Lord. Your great hope is the resurrection. Your great hope is the resurrection. That's why this is the great hope of the New Testament. It absolutely acknowledges that many believers are going to die before the resurrection, but that's not the emphasis. Because when you leave your body, when your physical body and your spiritual being are separated, that is a temporary condition. That is not how God is going to have you in eternity with him. He is one day going to give you a new body, incorruptible, imperishable, immortal. That is our great hope. That is what we look forward to. The souls under the altar that John sees in Revelation 6-9, what are they saying? They're saying, Lord, how long? How long? These are those who have died and gone to be with Christ. They are longing and waiting and hoping and expecting. What? To be with Christ? No, they're already with Christ for the completion of their salvation. But not just their salvation, for the completion of the salvation of the entire cosmos. New heavens and new earth. That's what is coming. So this is just sort of a temporary blip. The intermediate state is just a temporary blip. If we do not live to see the return of Jesus Christ, each one of us will experience physical death. Each one of us will experience that incredibly disruptive separation of our immaterial self from our physical body. And we will enter into a temporary state of being bodiless until the resurrection. This is the completion of salvation. This is the inauguration of new heavens and new earth. That's what we are longing for. That's what we desire to see more than anything else. And basically what the New Testament says is, look, if you have died physically when Christ returns, great. If you haven't died physically when Christ returns, great. What everyone is longing for, whether you've died physically or not died physically, is for Jesus Christ to return. So are you doing it on earth in a body? Great. Are you doing it in the presence of the Lord without a body? That's fine too. But what we are all longing for, more than, hey, when I die, I go to be with Jesus, that's a wonderful thing. But more, more, more than that, we are longing for the return of Jesus Christ. That's our great hope. And if you die physically and your spiritual being leaves your physical body and you go to be with Jesus, you will be longing for his return in his presence. And you will be joining with those souls under the altar and saying, Lord, how long, how long until you complete this work of redemption? Okay? Yes. Two. All right. Go ahead. Whoever wants to go first. Hello. Um, this is Flora. 
Uh, I have this. How you doing? I didn't fall asleep. Um, <laughs> uh, so Dave, um, I I imagine that this the sins of Adam and Eve would have fallen on their kids, but I'm just wondering, could you know, you know, why Christ, you know, didn't allow those that followed, you know, the uh, people that were born after Adam and Eve to be judged on their own merits versus just kicking everybody out of, you know, you know, the Garden of Eden? Yeah, an excellent, excellent question. And what I would okay. say, Flora, is it's both. We are absolutely judged for having fallen in Adam when he sinned. Absolutely. But you are judged for your own sin. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He puts both of those in parallel with each other. He doesn't pit one against the other. In Adam, sin came and death through sin, but we have all sinned, so we all die. So it's both. There was an absolute uniqueness to Adam because he was the first man ever created. And so in a sense, he was the head of all humanity. That's why sometimes Jesus is referred to as the last Adam, the last man. So just as we all have fallen in Adam, in Christ, we can all be forgiven and be saved. So it's impossible for us to escape our identity as being descended from Adam. Eve, her name comes from the word to live or to be alive. She is the mother of all living. We may not want to say, hey, Eve is our mom and Adam is our dad, but that's inescapable. That's who we are. We are inescapably descendants of Adam and Eve. So in part, our sin is a result of their disobedience. But absolutely, each one of us is judged for our own sinfulness and our own disobedience. So it's both. It's absolutely both. And that's what the scriptures clearly teach. So yes, all of humanity fell in Adam because that was the responsibility that was given to him. He had headship over the entire human race. That's what God gave him. So in Adam, all have sinned. In Adam, all have fallen. But absolutely, each one of us is also judged for our own sinful decisions and our own sinful behavior. Okay? So it's both. And there was a grand, devastating result for all of creation when Adam sinned. But, you know, there's a parallel because sometimes we like to kid ourselves and say, my sin doesn't affect other people. My sin doesn't affect other people. Your sin always affects other people. Maybe you don't see the connection, but your sin always affects other people. And Adam is the classic example of that. His sin affected all of us. So don't ever let the enemy deceive you into thinking, hey, this sin is private, this sin is personal, this sin won't have an impact on anyone but me. Wrong. Your sin absolutely affects other people. It always has, it always will. And that's part of what we see in the lesson of Adam as well. But Flora, it's both. 
It's both. You are being judged not only for Adam's sin, but you are being judged for your own sin. You are individually culpable as we all are, even though we all have fallen in Adam. But yeah, thank you thank for bringing you. that up. Thank you. We have another comment or question? Alex. Yeah, please, Alex. Uh, thanks, Dave. Uh, hello. Yeah, we can hear you. Sure, thanks. Thanks, Dev. I think this yeah. is really uh, very uh, helpful. I've not had the, uh, the point you made about the spirit and the soul of being the same, which makes absolute sense in many ways, because whenever you try to explain the difference between those, you, you get stuck. I think it's part of those things we will maybe not fully understand uh, on this part of eternity. But the question I have there is, uh, in the people that have tried to explain those things about the difference between us and animals, because they all have emotions, they feel pain, they feel fear and all of those, and that sits within the realm of the soul and all that, and that the spirit is what really makes that difference. How would you respond to that? And also, when we think about the spirit, that uh, the breath of life that God gave to man that made him a living soul, that breath is from God. And when we are separated from the body uh, through physical death, how uh, is there a part of that that returns to its maker or is really entirely uh, uh, comp uh, composition of the individual and, and, and whatever the state of that soul or spirit is uh, in the afterlife is a function of what that person did uh, while alive. I don't know if that's clear, the question I'm asking. Yeah. Well, I, I think it is. If, if my answer is not hitting what you're getting at, then, then please re-ask. The first, the first issue that Alex is raising is what makes humanity distinct from the rest of living creation, specifically the animal kingdom. We were talking about the plant kingdom a little bit, but the question is what makes humanity unique amongst all of God's creation? First of all, what I would say, Alex, is the scriptures don't really do much of a deep dive into the composition of animals. I mean, I think there's something about, you know, the spirit or the, the soul of a beast in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's a very peripheral comment that's not the main point that the author of Ecclesiastes is making. But generally speaking, there isn't a deep dive biblically into the composition of animals. And even if we look at today what we would consider animals, we see a huge difference. You know, we look at a slug or we look at a dog that's our pet, or, you know, we look at, you know, a, a carrion vulture, or we look at, you know, the, so there's an incredible diversity within the animal kingdom. So I think, Alex, the best answer that I can give is simply what Genesis gives is that unique amongst all of creation is humanity being made in the likeness and image of God. That is what I would emphasize more than anything else. What makes us unique from every other created being is that we alone are uniquely made in the likeness and the image of God. Now, of course, the follow-up question to that is, well, then what does it mean? that we are made in the likeness and image of God. And again, Genesis doesn't define that as much as maybe 
us modern folks would like it to be defined. But I would say kind of secondary is the idea of a spirit or a soul in humanity as what makes them unique from the animal kingdom as let's use the language of Genesis and say what makes us unique from the rest of creation is that we are made in the likeness and the image of God. And of course, there's a lot of discussion about what does that mean? You know, the character of God, the attributes of God, the physical appearance of God. I think all of those tie into it, but that's a much, much larger discussion, probably larger than what we have time for tonight. But that's what I would say initially, is that I think there is a relative absence of deep evaluation into the makeup of animals. I don't think, like, if someone were to ask me, you know, did my pet dog, does it have a soul? I'm just going to say, I don't know. I, I really don't, because I don't think scripture makes that clear to me. I know you love your dog a lot, and I know your dog was very loyal to you. I had a dog when I was a kid. I loved my dog. He was loyal. Did he have a soul that continued beyond his death? I have no idea. I have no idea. And at least as I read the scriptures, I don't see anything in scripture that clearly indicates that animals that live in this life will make it into the next. There are pictures of an animal kingdom living at peace. We looked at that in Isaiah. So yes, absolutely, that will be part of the new creation. But the, are they carried over from this age? I don't know. And so for me, ultimately, I have to say I'm not sure about that. But what I know scriptures teach is that what makes us distinct from the rest of creation is we are made in the likeness and image of God. In terms of what actually happens to that immaterial you, your spirit or your soul, that's what we will explore a little bit more in the time that we have tonight. And what we are going to see is that this is something that God revealed slowly over time. So in other words, Adam and Eve's understanding of what happened to them when they died physically was not nearly as advanced as subsequent generations. And of course, with the arrival of Christ and the dawn of the New Testament age, our understanding of what happens to us when we die physically is far greater than what early humanity understood. But absolutely, there is a strong correlation between your individual identity here in your physical body and your individual identity when you die physically and are separated from your physical body. And so, again, not a lot. Not a lot is said. It's not the main focus. But enough is given to us to have incredible confidence that we go to be with Christ. But absolutely, there is a complete correlation, connection between your existence in your physical body here and the ongoing existence of your soul or your spirit after you die physically. So hopefully that was the, the second issue where you were raising. Is that, is that close, Alex? Yes, uh, uh, Dev, thanks a lot. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for raising those issues. We have a question here. Yeah. Okay. Alex, too. I had to go. Um, so when you were speaking, uh, you were talking about the original context or purpose when before the fall of man, how Adam 
and Eve had the ability to be immortal. What role did, I, I don't know if this is a side question, it's not that important, I guess, but what role did the tree of life have in that? Um, would the tree of life sustained a corrupted body, but then was anything corrupted before that? Was it, was the tree of life necessary? Like kind of those types of questions. And then when you were speaking, I honestly, I was looking at something else, so I missed it. I don't know if you referenced a scripture to the immortality for the fall of man or not, um, but what clues are there scripturally to that? Yeah, no, excellent, excellent questions. Again, I think the statement that the Lord makes as he's driving them out of the garden, because as he's expelling them from Eden, he says, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. So the tree of life is the representation of the eternal life that God offers us. Because when do we see the tree of life again? In the book of Revelation. And it will be our incredible privilege to eat freely from the tree of life for all of eternity. And so what we see represented by the tree of life is that offer from God to enjoy life eternally with him, to enjoy the fullness and the abundance of life that he has to offer. And again, that, that, that phrase is so pregnant with meaning when he says, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. I think clearly the implication is they would have lived forever in a fallen state, in a corrupted state, in a perishable state, as, as, as contradictory as that seems. That point that Ephraim brought up, that this body is corruptible. And so what would that have looked like? Don't know. Don't know. But what, what is clear is that God had to get them away from him offering eternal life in that way. So one way maybe to think of it is this was the offer of God of eternal life pre-fall. Live in my garden. Live in my creation. Eat freely from all of the trees, including the tree of life. And enjoy that eternal, abundant life that I'm offering you. Then the fall came. And God obviously could no longer permit fallen humanity to receive eternal life in that way because obviously now other issues had to be dealt with but that's what's so incredible is that now through the sacrifice of christ through the new life we have in him one of the great promises we have is eternal access to the tree of life and of course we saw that in ezekiel hopefully when you were reading ezekiel if you were reading it carefully ezekiel 47 you saw that that trickle that became a stream, that became a river. Trees were growing on it and bearing fruit constantly. That's Ezekiel's tree of life. That's Ezekiel's abundant, extravagant, eternal life. That is the tree of life that John sees in the book of Revelation. It's promised to those of us who overcome to one of the churches in the seven messages, but it's promised at the end of the book of Revelation from the throne of God, throws the river of life and on either side of the river of life the tree of life grows and it bears its fruit 12 months out of the year even the best geneticists haven't produced something like that yet i don't think 
Maybe they have. But 12 months out of the year, it bears a crop. In the ancient world, never would have happened. So, yeah, what I would say is it's an incredibly powerful, beautiful, creational image of God giving us life. And when Adam and Eve fell, they could not receive God's offer of life that way. It had to be offered a different way, which, of course, was through the sacrifice of Jesus. So, but an excellent question. So, so physical death. Let's, let's move on. Remember, physical death, the separation of your physical body from immaterial you. Okay? But there is another kind of death that scriptures talks about. And we're going to read two passages from the New Testament. John chapter 3, verse 3, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to call this spiritual death. Spiritual death. So John chapter 3, verse 3, and Ephesians 2, verse 1. Actually, let's read Ephesians 2, verse 1 first. Does someone have that for us? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You want to get John 3, Andrew? Thank you. Yeah, Bilio, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Hello? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. All right. So, Paul is saying to the Ephesian Christians, you were dead. Biologically, they were alive. Physically, they had been born. They were breathing, they were eating, they were performing metabolic, biological functions. They were alive in a biological sense. They had not yet died physically. So this is a different kind of death. Physical death was coming for them, but before they died physically, Paul says, you were already dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So there is another kind of death that the scriptures speak about. And this is oftentimes referred to as spiritual death. It is possible for humanity to be biologically alive and to be spiritually dead. If we're thinking of it in terms of separation, remember, physical death is the separation of your physical body from your immaterial self. Spiritual death is separation from God. When you are spiritually dead, you are separated from God. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't die physically instantly, but they did die spiritually instantly. Remember, they are ashamed. They are hiding from God. They no longer want fellowship with God. They no longer want relationship with God. As God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, he discovered that they were hiding from him. They didn't want to be near him. 
They didn't want to be connected to him. They had died spiritually, just as God had warned. The moment that they sinned, the moment that they disobeyed, they died. Physical death was still on the horizon. Adam lived some 900 years more after he ate. But spiritual death happened instantly. And what we see is that every human being, when they are physically born, are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Let's get John 3.3, and then we'll get to you, Elliot, okay? So, Andrew, would you read John 3.3 for us? John 3.3. In reply, Jesus declared, I will tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So, very, very famous comment or conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus says, to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again, or you must be born from above. Very interesting. The word that the Apostle John chooses here can mean either. Now, normally, when you're looking at a word in Scripture, it only means one thing. And it only means one thing in that context. But John is a little bit unique because he intentionally chooses words that have multiple meanings and uses them in a way where both of those meanings apply. So here, Jesus is saying you must be born again. You must be born from above. Why must you be born again? Why must you be born from above? Because you are spiritually dead. Physically alive, biologically alive, from the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, but spiritually dead. The only way that you can overcome that spiritual death is to be born again. And remember, Nicodemus is confused and said, you know, how can a man when he's old go back into his mother's womb? He's thinking in terms of physical birth. And Jesus is saying, man, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't understand these things? No, you have to be born of the spirit, of water and the spirit. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. So when you were biologically born, you were physically, excuse me, you were spiritually dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sin until you were born again and Christ made you alive. So spiritual death, separation from God, the state of humanity without the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of Christ. But yes, Elliot, you had a comment or a question? When you say Adam and Eve no longer wanted relationship with God are you talking shame or are you talking rebellion definitely shame because you know they hide themselves you know they cover themselves physically with the 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 leaves and then they hide themselves from God so certainly shame rebellion I'm not sure Genesis makes that clear I would say possibly but not necessarily absolutely but i think what genesis is telling us is that relationship was disrupted fellowship was broken because of what they did certainly because of shame certainly because of shame maybe because of rebellion as well a willfulness there i'm not sure that's what genesis emphasizes so but definitely the shame component of it 
And that's, you know, it's so interesting because one of the things that God says, or what Genesis says before they fall, is they were naked without shame, which to us seems so strange, you know, because now we look at, you know, nudist colonies and say, man, those guys are perverted, and they are. But pre-fall, naked and without shame was God's ideal. You know, it's that shame component, their awareness of their sin, their awareness of their fallenness that leads them to hide from the Lord. So definitely shame. Yep. Yeah, please. I don't mean to take us too off topic, but is this idea of being physically born but separate from God where we get infant baptism from or where people get infant baptism from? Infant baptism comes primarily from circumcision. The believing congregations today that continue to infant baptize, they make a strong connection between circumcision and baptism. Because remember, every male child born into a believing household in Israel was circumcised on the eighth day of their life. So long before they had any ability to decide whether they were going to serve the God of Israel or not. And so believing congregations today who continue to infant baptize, I'm thinking of evangelical Presbyterian congregations. There are some evangelical Episcopal Lutheran congregations. They primarily get that from the connection between baptism and circumcision. So what they would argue is that circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And specifically, I think it's Colossians 2. Ted, you can correct me if that's wrong. But in Colossians 2, Paul seems to be making a connection between circumcision and baptism. And he now talks about spiritual circumcision in connection to baptism. So I think to answer your question, Deborah, it isn't so much from, now, Catholics, yes. I think Catholics infant baptize because they believe that removes original sin. And so, to me, that's, that's not really that biblical. Um, they're making baptism out to be something I think it's not. So, I would say evangelical churches that are infant baptizing are connecting it with circumcision. Sign of the Old Testament, sign of the New Testament, Old Covenant, New. But no, that's, that's an excellent question. So, so spiritual death, a second type of death, physical death, separation of body and soul, separation of body and spirit, spiritual death, separation from God. Uh-huh, yeah, Libby, please. Okay. Okay. Oh, there we go. Um, so I had a question about uh like as Christians we die daily. Um, but that's kind of like what kind of death is that? Um it's not a physical death, but it's but it's a death so that we can live spiritually. So it's yeah. Just, do, you, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. yeah, that's excellent. The sheet that I've given you lists three type of deaths. Physical death, spiritual death, and either the second death or eternal death. But I would certainly never say that list is exhaustive. 
And you are giving an ex excellent example of another type of death. Because basically what, what Jesus is saying is dying to yourself. So dying to your sin nature. And what I would say is this ties in with the already, not yet. Because when you are born again, you have genuinely passed from death to life. You have. And you can find loads of New Testament scriptures that speak with that absolute certainty. The moment that you believe in Christ, the moment that you are born again, you have passed from death to life already. But there is a not yet component to it. That's why we have to die daily. Sin is defeated, but that doesn't mean we just kick back and watch TV and enjoy a nice drink. No, we have to fight every day. Not yet. Not yet. So the work has begun, but it hasn't been completed. So I would say that that type of death is connected, ironically, to the new birth. Because when you are born again, the old you is dead. The dead you is now really dead. And that's why, again, I don't want to be absolute. This list of three deaths is not exhaustive. You know, the death that Libby is bringing up is another incredibly powerful way that Scripture speaks of death. We have to die to ourselves daily. But what, what Jesus is really saying there is you have to say no to your sinful desires. You have to say no to your selfishness. You don't just live for yourself anymore. That was, that was spiritually dead you. All you did was live for yourself. You just live to gratify your own desires. I mean, the example that Paul gives in the rest of that Ephesians 2 passage is pretty grim. I mean, it's pretty grim how spiritually dead people live. So now as spiritually alive people, we die to ourselves, but we die to our sin nature. We die to our old self. We die to what we were before we met Christ. But I would think actually probably that would be a helpful fourth kind of death. I mean, it's not one that I've put on the sheet, but I think to me, I don't, I don't see it comfortably squeezing into any of these three categories. So to me, that's absolutely another way that scripture speaks about death. Is the new you, the born again you, dying to the old you, fighting the flesh daily? So actually, that's an excellent supplement, maybe 2A or, or 3 and and eternal death will be four. So no, thank you so much for bringing that up. So, but again, to me, that ties in with the already, not yet. You are new in Christ. You are dead to sin, but you've got to die daily. You've got to keep paddling. You can't, you know, one person told me years ago, the Christian life is like paddling upstream. As long as you're paddling, you're making progress. You're getting upstream. But as soon as you stop paddling, that canoe starts going backwards. To me, that's a, that's a helpful illustration. So what gives us the confidence to fight each day? What gives us the perseverance to say no to sin each day is knowing that we are dead to sin. You see, the, the once for allness, the alreadiness of it gives us the strength to continue to go after the not yetness. The fact that absolutely death is defeated, sin is defeated, gives us the strong encouragement to fight sin every day because we know that there is an end to this fight. That's why we fight every day. That confidence that we have, that Christ has accomplished this in us. We were dead, but now we're alive. And because of that, we have 
the will, the motivation, the confidence to keep fighting sin each day. But yeah, I really think Libby, as, as, as I'm talking about it in answer to what you brought up, you know, that that kind of dying, I think, would be a different type of dying, not necessarily any of the three that, that we're looking at. But let's just get to the third one. This is one that is referred to in the book of Revelation as the second death. Sometimes we talk about eternal death. As far as I know, that phrase, eternal death, doesn't actually appear in that form in Scripture, but I, I think it certainly is, is clearly taught. So, again, we want to distinguish sometimes between, you know, what specific words are used, which is important, but are there concepts that are taught that maybe don't use that word? So, like, in other words, as far as I know, there's not a single verse in Scripture that talks about the intermediate state. But that's a very helpful designation for what we're talking about. I, I don't think there's any place in Scripture that talks about eternal death. But certainly, when we get to the biblical idea of hell and eternal punishment, I think eternal death is a very, very appropriate way to describe this. But actually, what it is described in, in Revelation is the second death. So we have a couple of passages there. Let's just read one of them. You have the second one you can look up. Would someone read for us Revelation chapter 20, verse 14? Revelation 20, verse 14. Uh, yeah, let's not do Revelation 2.11. You can look that one up on your own. Uh, let's do Revelation 20, verse 14. We'll just do one of them because we're getting uh, late on time here. I have it. Oh. Go for it. Okay, Flora. Okay. Revelation 2014. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And can you read... Uh... Verse 13 as well. Do you okay? And let's see. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in sorry, my glasses fell off, in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead, which were to them, and they were, I'm saying, which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to them their deeds sorry okay so a little bit more of the background context so what we are looking at here is one of the results of final judgment and just to give you some context because obviously the lake of fire is a very fearful and intimidating biblical truth revelation 2 11 says that if we overcome if we persevere in christ the second death will not harm us the second death will not harm us. But it's interesting because the lake of fire is actually what brought me into the kingdom. When I was uh, 15 years old, a friend of mine gave me a track, and the last page of the track was a sinner being thrown into the lake of fire. And the Holy Spirit convicted me, and I knew that was me. I knew I was, I knew that's where I was going. 
and a couple of days later, I got on my knees and I accepted Christ. So again, you may, you may hear people say, we don't want to scare people. We don't want to scare people into the kingdom. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't believe the lake of fire is the only doctrine that is evangelistic, but it is a doctrine that is evangelistic. And you're looking at a guy that was saved because God made it clear to him that I was headed for the lake of fire. I just, I knew it. I looked at that picture at the end of that track. It was a cartoon, but I just knew. I said, wow, Lord, that's me. I know that's me. And a couple of days later, I accepted Jesus. So we don't want to talk about things like that all the time and only, but we don't want to never talk about those things. So if we're thinking in terms of separation, because I love just that idea that, that death in scripture is separation. Second death or eternal death is eternal separation from God. Those who are cast into the lake of fire on the day of final judgment, they are eternally separated from God. People are spiritually dead right now who are biologically alive. They have an opportunity to be made alive. They have an opportunity to be born again. Once you are experiencing the second death, you are eternally separated from God. There is no opportunity for salvation in the lake of fire. And so that is what Revelation refers to as second death, being eternally separated from God. So death is a nasty, awful, wretched enemy. We don't ever want to be, you know, okay with it, comfortable with it. We can face it courageously in Jesus. We can know that he tasted it for us and rose victorious, but it is an enemy. I mean, we can see this was never, ever God's best for his creation. This came because humanity said, I don't want your plan, God. And in every way, death is a disruption. So physical death, your immaterial being is separated from your physical body temporarily. Spiritual death, the state in which we are born biologically, we are spiritually dead until we receive Christ and are born again. And Eternal death or the second death is what awaits those who never avail themselves of the offer of eternal life that God makes. They have a fearful, fearful eternity separated from God. But three ways of understanding death, and then we can certainly helpfully add the principle that Libby brought up, dying daily, dying daily to the old you, dying daily to your selfishness, dying daily to your flesh crucifying your flesh so but a quick well not not too quick quick on an eternity standpoint um but i think was there was there a comment or question that was coming or let's let let yeah can we just have well, well sima's making a comment can we just get someone looking up romans 6 9 and someone looking up second timothy 1 10 because Christ has defeated death, 
So we don't want the last thing we say tonight be the lake of fire. I mean, the lake of fire is biblical, but Christ has defeated death. So I want us to end on Romans 6, 9 and 2 Timothy 1, 10. But yeah, please. I just want to add to the um, that you gave uh, Alex. He asked about um, when a person dies and the immaterial part of them is is separated from the bi from the body um is it the immaterial part which is touched by christ the breath of god or you know and then we read um nicodemus uh, jesus speaking to nicodemus and jesus said flesh gives birth to flesh spirit gives birth to spirit so there's this immaterial you which is redeemed and then there is the immaterial you which is the unredeemed the those who have died but are not with the lord so i guess the the spirit that does go up to the altar of the lord who is you know absent from the body present with the lord that spirit is is the redeemed immaterial person immaterial you right yeah and that's actually i think the point that's being made in the hebrews 12 23 passage the spirits of those made perfect. That idea that there is a significant completion of sanctification when you experience physical death. Yeah, so absolutely. And, and again, we're gonna talk a little bit more because I mean, at this point, all we're talking about is death. And as you can see on the sheets, we're gonna explore a little bit more. Well, what, what more does scripture say about what happens to us or what happens to unbelieving humanity in this intermediate state. And we'll have to get to that on uh, two weeks. But would someone read for us Romans uh, 6, 9, and then would someone else read for us 2 Timothy 1, 10? Because I just want us to end on the incredibly glorious truth that Christ has defeated death. Okay. Um, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again death no longer has mastery over him that's so glorious you know how how did christ defeat death by himself dying he died he died to defeat death and on the third day he rose he will never die again he died once for all. And, 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 and the phrase that's used there, that last part, death has no lordship over him. Death has no rulership over him. It's, it's done. You know, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says Jesus is holding the keys of death and Hades. So good. Do we have 2 Timothy 1.10? But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's just so good. He demolished, or I think Ellie's translation said abolished. I mean, the word that's used there is to completely and totally render ineffective. 
So abolish is a great word. Demolish is a great word. That's what Christ has done to death. And all that Christ is bringing now is life. The exact opposite of death. That's who he is. That's what he brings. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So yes, absolutely. We don't, we don't want to shrink away from the more intimidating, more unpleasant truths of Scripture. We don't. We don't want to deny the lake of fire. We don't want to deny the second death. We don't want to deny the potential of eternal separation from God. But in the face of that, there is glory. There is the victory of Christ. He died to defeat death. And he rose victorious. And he will never die again. Death has no lordship over him. And he appeared. And in his appearing, he has abolished death. He has destroyed death. And there is now life through the light of the gospel. That's what we are offering. That's what we ourselves are experiencing. But really, when you think about it, in terms of what we've been talking about tonight, we are offering dead people life. That's what we're offering. them, And the only way that is possible is through Jesus Christ. And he tasted death for us. You know, some of us get a little intimidated when we think about our own death. And I think because it's such a vicious enemy, I don't think there's anything, you know, wrong about that. We shouldn't be enslaved to that fear. We're not chained to that fear. But, hey, none of us have died physically before. We're, we're going to do it for the first time, and we'll never have done it before. But one of the great, great comforts we have is the one... will be holding our hand is the one who tasted death for us. He'll be saying with us at that moment, I've been there and you're going through this with me. What an incredible, incredible promise. So, but anyways, really, really rich and powerful stuff. Um, we, will, we will be meeting in two weeks um again we're on that, that that pace now so the next time we will be meet is wednesday october the 19th um we will get into the rest of the concepts that are on the bottom of this first sheet and the second sheet so again feel free to read ahead don't don't feel like that's cheating or or being dishonest feel free to look up those passages but lord willing in two weeks we will be back here wednesday october the 19th at 7 p.m but let me just close this with a word of prayer Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for uh, giving us the opportunity to be together tonight. We thank you so much for the incredible truth that we have been considering tonight. And just that, that last and most glorious truth that we looked at, that Jesus Christ, you are victorious over death. And, and we have seen that death is a ferocious enemy, and death is just such a, a, a horrific disruption of your good creation and your good plan for humanity. And yet, Father, at the moment that, that death entered the world through sin, you didn't give up on us. You didn't say, that's it, one shot, and you blew it. In fact, Lord, you did that 
radical thing that needed to be done to keep us from living eternally in a fallen state. And it was just one of many, many, many incredibly kind and gracious things you have repeatedly done to bring fallen humanity back to yourself. And so, Father, we are just in amazement. We are once again in amazement at what you were willing to do and what has happened so that we who were dead have been made alive. And we are so grateful to you for that. And God, as we have often prayed, I just want to close this time tonight by, by asking that these truths would change us. We, just, we don't just want to have more theological knowledge. I mean, theological knowledge is, is wonderful. But God, we want that theological knowledge to change us. To change us. To make us more like your son, Jesus. And so I pray tonight the things that we have talked about would change us. And bring forth more of the fruit and the character of your spirit in each of our lives. And Jesus, it is in your name and your name alone we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here. Wonderful to be together. Lord willing, we'll see you in two weeks on Wednesday, October the 19th. But the Lord bless the rest of your night and give you safety traveling home. Mm -hmm.